a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And so the Second Amendment, the key part of the Second Amendment for me as a historian is the well-regulated militia part. The presumption that citizens, as part of their civic duty, do not have a duty to join a national army, Prussian style, but are supposed to be involved in defending their communities. So in this episode of the podcast, we are going to be reacting to a conversation that happened on the Lex Friedman podcast, and it is between Lex Friedman and a historian. And in this discussion, they are talking about the Civil War, but more specifically, what they're talking about is the Second Amendment. And this historian here is trying to give some context of at least his belief about the context behind the Second Amendment, you know, our right to keep and bear arms, the militia, you know, access to certain firearms. So this is an interesting discussion because you have a historian here trying to represent some things to Lex Friedman about the Second Amendment. And so my goal with this, you know, kind of reaction in my podcast is to give further context from a 2A advocate, from someone who follows all the legal cases, the history behind the Second Amendment, and just add some further context because a lot of this is framed around the Civil War, but a lot of the information is left out. So let's dig into what is going on here. But first, I just want to mention that, you know, if you're not currently subscribed to the channel, make sure you're subscribed to the channel. About 60% of all viewers are not subscribed to the channel. And then also, if you're listening to this on the audio side of things on Apple Podcast, Spotify, make sure you're following the show. And if you're not aware, we do have this available in audio only format, and that's over on all platforms. So let's dig into what this discussion is. What's the relationship between this uh, no conscription and people standing up to fight for ideas and the Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. We're in Texas. Yeah, yes. So, What's the role of that uh, in, in this story? The American population is already armed before the war. And so even though the Union and the Confederate armies will manufacture and purchase arms, it is already an armed population. So uh, the American presumption going into the war is that citizens will not be forced to serve, but they will serve in militias to protect their own property. And so the Second Amendment, the key part of the Second Amendment for me as a historian is the well-regulated militia part. The presumption that citizens, as part of their civic duty, do not have a duty to join a national army, Prussian style, but are supposed to be involved in defending their communities. So there you have the quick discussion about their, you know, some of the first, you know, piece of the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Um, oftentimes that's referred to as the prefatory clause of the Second Amendment. If you want a more comprehensive breakdown of the Second Amendment, you know, kind of through a legal lens and historical lens, you know, you can go and look at the Heller decision. That is, you know, one of the first landmark decisions by the Supreme Court in regards to the Second Amendment. And Justice Scalia, writing for the majority, broke down the Second Amendment, talking about the prefatory clause and then also the operative clause. The operative clause being, you know, the next part of the you know, Second Amendment that it talks about shall not be infringed. You know, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That is the operative clause, um, you know, and that's what he broke down also in Heller. But here in this podcast, they're talking more about the Civil War. Uh, they're talking about you, those individuals in possession of firearms during that time leading up to the war and then also after. And so Lex here is talking about, you know, how did the Second Amendment play into that? 
And this historian is talking about, you know, prior to the Civil War, individuals were already in possession of firearms and they were fully expected to potentially serve in the militia and bring those firearms that they had with them to serve in the militia. Now, this is nothing new. This is not anything that's unique to the Civil War. This is exactly what also happened, you know, during our founding, during the Revolutionary War. There were individuals, you know, men who had firearms, who had rifles and, and pistols and muskets, you know, or, you know, axes and knives or whatever arms that they had. You know, they had those in their possession, you know, common arms used for lawful purposes, including other things. But they were also expected to bring those firearms to service in the militia. And if you look at some of the historical context, actually around the revolutionary time, there were often some laws that would actually require those individuals to maintain those firearms, to have those firearms, to train with those firearms, and to have them ready to be served in use in militia and bring them to church just in case to protect them from Native Americans. And a lot of other historical contexts that talked about this structure of an individual having these firearms in their possession for other purposes, but also ex fully expected to bring them just in case they had to serve in the militia. And that is, again, nothing new that carried over from the Revolutionary War to later times and eventually also into the Civil War. And so that's what they're talking about here. Now, this historian talks about the context of a well-regulated militia, and this is something that's even still today um, in some ways debated, but not really in the legal field. Because oftentimes what you will hear, especially when you're dealing with um, anti-gun individuals or gun control advocates, especially like on social media, oftentimes they will say, you know, and I just saw a comment today on my channel where a random commenter talked about, you know, a well-regulated militia. Everybody wants to look over that piece. You know, that talk clearly points to the government being able to regulate firearms and put gun control laws in place and restrict your access to certain firearms. But the reality is, that that is not true at all. When the founders wrote the Second Amendment, when it was ratified in 1791, a well-regulated militia did not mean government control. It did not mean government laws and restrictions. And I'm not even going to use my own words. I will use Justice Scalia's words that he put in Heller. And I have it here off to the side. And he talks about this very issue about what does well-regulated mean? And he states that finally, the adjective well-regulated implies nothing more than the imposition of proper discipline and training. So a well-regulated militia does not mean government control. It does not mean government regulations and laws. It simply means that people should be well-trained, you know, equipped and ready to serve if they are called upon. And again, that's one of those core contexts and core aspects of the Second Amendment. A lot of people also on the other side try to limit the Second Amendment to just self-defense, you know, your individual self-defense or your family's self-defense against maybe another attacker or criminal. But there is another critical aspect of the Second Amendment that the founders were much more concerned about, especially coming off of the recent war that they fought with Britain. And that was a tyrannical government, either foreign or domestic. So your, you know, access to firearms was essential to the founders and your ability to be well-regulated, well-trained, and well-equipped was also paramount to them 
so that if you needed to, you could fight back against that tyrannical government, either foreign or domestic. So that is kind of the context surrounding what a well-regulated militia was always intended to mean. And again, there are a ton of historical documents. It's been battled back and forth in the legal world. It's referenced here in one of the first Supreme Court landmark cases where the whole concept of well-regulated being government regulation was struck down. And that's why I say this type of argument really doesn't play at all anymore in the legal world. And really, if maybe an anti-gun attorney or maybe a state or federal attorney, you know, tried to bring forward that type of argument to a court, even a liberal court, trying to say, well, regulated means we can put in place any restrictions that we want, they would reject that argument outright because of what the Supreme Court has already said in some of these prior decisions. So again, context surrounding what a well-regulated militia is, access to firearms during the Revolutionary War, going into the Civil War, and that is why people already had these firearms and they were fully expected to bring them if they decided to serve in the militia. Uh, and that's, that's the reality. It's also a bit of a myth. Um, and so Americans have, have, throughout their history, been gun owners. Not AK-47 owners, but gun owners. And gun ownership has been for the purpose of community self-defense. The question coming out of that is, what does that mean in terms of, do you have access to everything? Uh, Antonin Scalia, even himself, asked this question on the Supreme Court. So before he jumps into the Scalia quote, which he's going to use some dicta from Scalia in Heller, which we'll address that as well, but here he's talking about, you know, coming out of the Civil War, people having certain arms in their possession coming out of the Civil War. What was the expectation of what type of arms could they have in their possession? Now, what's interesting here, you know, this is a podcast that aired only about eight months ago. And it's interesting that, you know, I understand they're talking about the context of the Civil War. But when it comes to the Second Amendment, the historical analysis does not happen around this time. The expectation and the analysis does not go around you know, what type of arms or what were the laws in place during the Civil War and the Reconstruction era. Instead, the true analysis, as reaffirmed and reiterated by the Supreme Court in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, the true analysis is you look at the text of the Second Amendment, and then if that conduct is protected by the text of the Second Amendment, like your right to bear and keep arms, well, then... You, the government to put in place some sort of restriction would have to point to a historical analog or some sort of potentially historical twin that dates back to 1791, not the Civil War or the Reconstruction era. So the whole question about you know what was the expectation coming out of the Civil War if you could possess these types of you know firearms that they potentially used during that war, that whole framing of the analysis is incorrect. The true question is what type of arms were commonly owned by law-abiding people for lawful purposes during the founding era. Now, that does not mean by any means that the type of arms we have a right to is limited to only muskets and, and you know, flink lock pistols and you know, potentially cannons and you know, knives and axes. That does not by any means mean that the, that type of technology is all we have access to. In fact, again, the Supreme Court has addressed this in multiple decisions, talking about how our right to keep and bear, bear arms evolves over time with the technology. And the true analysis is, is it a common arm owned by law-abiding people for lawful purposes? Is it in common use? And 
it's interesting here he referenced, you know, AK-47s. He's not saying, you know, and I think this is a little bit where his gun control mind potentially is kicking in because to him, maybe it seems absurd that an individual should have access to an AK-47. And I'm not sure how familiar he is with firearms. I don't know if he's trying to think that this is a fully automatic rifle. Um, you know, a lot of times people try to frame AK-47s as, you know, the bad guy gun. That's also always what you see in Hollywood. But that's just simply not true. AKs and are probably the second most commonly owned rifle in the United States and, you know, probably maybe even the most owned one across the entire world. But specifically also for the U.S., you know, the most commonly owned rifle is the AR-15. And so that is really the analysis. Are these rifles commonly owned and, you know, are they in common use for lawful purposes by law-abiding people? And the argument and the, you know, the statistics show very clearly that they are. You know, there are millions of these types of rifles that are owned by law abiding people. And so the common use set, test would show that, yes, they are clearly protected. And so any categorical ban on the purchase or possession of them, even prior to Bruin under Heller, would need to be struck down because it would be absurd to the founders. If you went to the founders and said, hey, the most common rifle that you guys have right now is this musket. Well, we're going to ban them outright. At that time, that would be absolutely absurd and it would be the thing that they would probably go to war over. And it is the whole reason that they put in place the Second Amendment. So then to you know, fast forward to modern times and say the most commonly owned rifles, we're going to categorically ban them again would be absurd to the founders and would go against that unqualified command of the Second Amendment, which is shall not be infringed. So again, just some further context about the Second Amendment, how, you know, oftentimes there's also arguments that maybe you only have a right to a musket, that these types of rifles you don't have a right to. Again, the Supreme Court has rejected those types of arguments. And we've talked about, you know, quite often on the channel and, and in other cases that we don't treat any other right that way. We would not say that your First Amendment rights are limited to only the First Amendment technology that existed at the time of the founding. We don't say that. But for whatever reason, the gun control side, the anti-gun side loves to, you know, put out that type of argument when it comes to the Second Amendment. And again, this is just one of those things that we have to deal with in which Thomas has mentioned multiple times in cases. For whatever reason, in the U.S., we try to treat the Second Amendment as a second class right, which it is not. It is a fundamental human right. The Second Amendment does not grant any rights. Instead, it just simply says what the government cannot do to our fundamental right to keep and bear arms. And what they cannot do is they cannot infringe on it. It shall not be infringed. Supreme Court, you know, he said uh, in one of the gun gun cases, uh, you have the right to defend yourself, but you don't have the right to own an Uzi. <laughs> You don't have the right to have a tank. I don't think they'd let you park a tank, Lex, in your parking spot, right? I, actually, I looked into this. I think I think there's a gray area around tanks, actually. <laughs> I, I think you're legit allowed to own a tank. Oh, you really? I think there's well, – somebody look into this. Somebody told me, but I could see, like, that – because it's very difficult for that to get out of hand. Right, right. <laughs> okay, I mean, there may be one guy in a tank. That you could be breaking laws in terms of the width of the vehicle that you're using to operate – um, anyway, that's the so again, there's two things that they're talking about. So uh, to address the tank thing, um, yes, right now in the U.S., there are people that own tanks. It's not illegal to own tanks. In fact, I go to a, an event almost every single year 
over at Drive Tanks where they have privately owned tanks that you can shoot and drive and all that stuff. Now, there are some restrictions, uh, you know, tied to that. But yes, people do have, you know, access to tanks and they own tanks. You know, one of the other things you hear discussed quite often is at the founding time, Biden says this all the time, which is just simply not true. And it's been fact checked over and over again, but he still says it. He tries to say that you could not own cannons, you know, during the founding, which is simply not true. There were hundreds and thousands of cannons owned by private individuals. There were entire warships that were owned by private individuals with cannons on them. And even to this day, it is not illegal to own cannons. So there are, you know, some of these arms that they are questioning here that, yes, are very legal to own. Now, the underlying thing I think they're hitting on here or they're questioning here is the dangerous and unusual aspect of the you know, Second Amendment and the legal analysis revolving around the Second Amendment and the dangerous and unusual test. This popped up in Heller. And, you know, here he's referencing that Scalia talked about dangerous and unusual firearms. But the reality is even quote unquote, dangerous and unusual firearms, those are still oftentimes commonly owned by law abiding people for lawful purposes. So they're still protected by the text of the Second Amendment. And then the question is, OK, even though they are protected by the text of the Second Amendment, what type of government restrictions are potentially permissible because they are deemed dangerous and unusual? And a lot of times you see this kind of come into the context of certain firearms that are regulated under the NFA and GCA, like SBRs, um, you know, automatic weapons. Um, so a lot of times they try to lump those types of firearms into the dangerous and unusual category. Now, in one of the things I want to hit on is the fact that all firearms are dangerous. So that is not the actual test. And oftentimes in these court cases, for example, in California, in their um cases involving the magazine ban, the Duncan case, and then the Miller ban on so-called assault weapons. The state of California often times tries to frame this test as only a dangerous or unusual test, but it's not dangerous or unusual. It's dangerous and unusual because all firearms are dangerous. So if you just said the only qualifier for government restrictions is that the firearm is dangerous, then the government can do whatever they want. But the true test is dangerous and unusual. So by no means could you say that an AR-15 or an AK is dangerous and unusual because they're just, yes, they are firearms, they're dangerous, but they're not unusual by any means because they're owned by millions of people, law-abiding people for lawful purposes. So that's kind of where that common use test also comes in to determine if something really is unusual. Now, when you start talking about things like nuclear bombs and, and things of that nature, then you start to have that analysis of, okay, is this something dangerous and also very unusual that is not in common use for lawful purposes? But also in that guise, the government is not the one that gets to determine what is unusual. The government cannot put in place a law that then bans something and then they say, look, it's unusual because we banned it. That is not the analysis. The true analysis is kind of the marketplace analysis, in my opinion. What do the law abiding people, what do the American citizens decide to purchase possess and use for lawful purposes like self-defense, training, hunting, and then also potentially to have to fight back against a tyrannical government. What are those arms that they choose to have? So that is kind of my take on, you know, what would you, what would you do with that specific, you know, unusualness test? Um, you know, and there's a lot of people that hold that same opinion. Now, 
I want to address the comment that he's making about Scalia, how Scalia said that there are potentially limits. Now, again, Scalia is kind of hinting at this dangerous and unusual test. You know, dicta is not actually binding legal language in the Supreme Court opinion, but or any opinion really is just um, some of these sentences to add some further context, but it's not truly legal binding. And imagine if it's just something that's kind of thrown in there as conversations, not meant to be binding, but oftentimes what happens with a lot of these opinions unfortunately, is there is dicta language like this in an opinion that then the anti-gun side will try to grasp onto. And that kind of led to the um, perforation of some of the gun control laws post Heller. And unfortunately, there was years that went on by inactivity by the Supreme Court. And there were a lot of limitations putting put on our right to keep and bear arms even after Heller. But the language he's referencing here, um, which I'm assuming he's referenced because it's one of the most common lines that's referenced is this specifically where it says, like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. And so then they go on to talk about how the analysis, the historical analysis today of the full scope of the Second Amendment, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. So that is my assumption in the language he is referencing there. But oftentimes that first sentence where they talk about the Second Amendment is not unlimited. By no means was Scalia saying that, especially in an opinion where he's striking down government regulation and a categorical ban on your possession of handguns, specifically in D.C., to be able to defend yourself, to have it in your home. Um, they're striking down that law with the Heller opinion. By no means was he trying to say, OK, the government can still put in place whatever restrictions that they want. But that's how that language was tried to use post Heller. Um, and again, going fasting forward to Bruin, uh, Bruin again addressed that, talked about that that was not what Scalia was saying in Heller. But even in Bruin, there was also, I will admit, some unfortunate language that was included in there by a concurrence by Kavanaugh, where he talks about the analysis that they set in Bruin was not meant to be a you know regulatory straitjacket. And so you've seen some states and some federal government agencies try to run with that. Again, concurrence and dicta language uh, talking about that potentially the government could still put in place restrictions. But the overarching analysis in both Heller and Bruin is that you look at the text of the Second Amendment, the text, and then if the conduct or the arm is protected by the text of the Second Amendment, the government can only put a put in place a restriction on that if they could show some sort of historical evidence dating back to 1791 or some sort of American tradition of that type of regulation. Again, text, history, and tradition. And if you're interested in these shirts, I will leave a link down below. So that is kind of the context of what he's talking about there. Um, you have to be very careful when you hear people like this pulling out these single phrases in the lawsuits or in these decisions without giving you the full analysis about what is really going on there and how these cases have played out over time and how they've been addressed over time. It's a hilarious discussion. But so then to make the case, speaking of AK-47s and rifles and back to Ukraine for a second, one of the fascinating social experiments that happened in Ukraine at the beginning of the war is they handed out guns to everybody, rifles, and crime went down, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. I hope somebody does a, a kind of psychological data collection analysis effort here to try to understand why, because it's not obvious to me 
that in a time of war, if you give guns to the entire populace, anyone who wants a gun, it's not going to, especially in a country who has historically suffered from corruption, mm-hmm. not result in robberies and assaults and all that kind of stuff. There's a deep lesson there. Now, I don't know if you can extend that lesson beyond wartime, though. Right. That's the question. What happens after the war? I mean, my inclination would be- So they're going to talk about, you know, after the Civil War and, and some of the things that played out after the Civil War, after, you know, with the possession of certain firearms after the Civil War. <clears throat> but I want to address this question that Lex Freeman is having about, you know, in Ukraine, when the, you know, war started there, the government started to hand out rifles to all the citizens so that they can defend themselves and defend the country. Um, and we recently saw this also play out in Israel, where after the attacks, the government there um, started to hand out rifles, you know, tens of thousands of rifles to people. They opened up their concealed carry permitting process because they had hyper-restrictive gun laws in Israel. Um, it was very hard to have a concealed carry permit, is my understanding in Israel. And the fact actually was, you know, even after the government official announced that they were going to open that portal, that anyone could have a handgun and then potentially, con- you know, concealed carry it. Um, when they opened up that portal, there were so many people that applied that it crashed the portal. Now, the, Lex is asking, you know, he doesn't understand really why a government would do that at that time and what would be the benefit or the utility of that. And again, I would just point to the purpose of the Second Amendment and what the founders understanding of the Second Amendment was coming off of the Revolutionary War fighting against a tyrannical government. What we've seen play out in history is that anytime there is this type of conflict, an armed populace and a well-trained populace is very effective at fighting off that tyrannical government. So that is why, you know, despite whatever gun control laws they had in place in these various nations, the second things got really serious and the core purpose of the Second Amendment was revealed, the first thing that that government entity did was hand out those firearms to the citizens so they could defend themselves and they could also defend the country. And so I don't, to me, I don't really understand the struggle that Lex is having with this concept. I think it's pretty obvious. I don't know if he's maybe struggling more with maybe why crime didn't increase because in, you know, if you look at some of the FBI statistics and the CDC statistics in the US, um, we have more guns per capita than any other nation. And our crime rates are not anywhere near the you know numbers of some of these other countries. Um, and then also when you look at actual crime rates in relation to firearms, it's not actually anywhere. You know, more deaths are caused by baseball bats and hands and fists than they are firearms. So there's a lot of statistics that would back why, you know, even despite the fact that thousands of rifles and handguns are handed out, crime rates wouldn't increase because the firearms themselves aren't the ones that actually are causing you know, violence. Um, it's just evil people that cause violence, regardless of what tools they have. You know, they're going to use whatever tools they have access to. And then just the underlying purpose and why a government would do this is because that is the very purpose of our right to keep and bear arms. You know, the fundamental human right, in my opinion, the God-given right to protect yourself, your family members, your nation, and, you know, everybody against a potentially tyrannical government. And I think it's interesting, and I don't know why the anti-gun side, it's always interesting when these things happen, especially recently in Israel, how the anti-gun side doesn't really try to address it because it comes becomes very clear very quick in those type of countries that an armed populace having these scary 
rifles that they're so afraid of and they want to put restrictions on here in the U.S., they're all for handing out those rifles to those other countries and those other citizens to defend themselves. Now, the question is, I guess, what happens after the fact? It'll be interesting to see, you know, maybe if Israel then goes and tries to confiscate them once, you know, the conflict is over. You know, that's a question to be had. But in my opinion, you know, there was probably hundreds and thousands of people who could have defended themselves if they had access to firearms and didn't need to wait for the government to you know, grant them the permission to hand the firearms to them or open up the CCW um, concealed carry permit process. These people should have should have had access to these firearms beforehand so that they weren't sitting ducks. But again, that's just my opinion, but some further context about what they're talking about there. Now they're going to jump into talking about the post-Civil War, the continued possession of firearms that individuals had while they were serving in the Civil War, and then some of the um, racially motivated actions that happened in a post-Civil War Reconstruction era, which is very interesting, and we'll touch on you know how this has actually come into play with some of these legal battles recently, especially like in California and some of these other ones with the ban on so-called assault weapons in California in the Miller case and then the Duncan Magazine ban case. Be to say that can work during war, but you have to take the guns back <laughs> after the war. <laughs> but they might be very upset when you try to. That's take the problem. No, that's precisely the problem. That that's actually part of the story here. I mean, what happens after the Civil War, after Appomattox in 1865, is that many uh, Southern soldiers go home with their guns, mm -hmm. and they misuse their weapons uh, to, quite frankly, shoot and intimidate. Uh, former slaves who are now citizens. And this is a big problem. I talk about this in the book in Memphis in 1866. Uh, it is former Confederate soldiers and police officers and judges who are responsible for hundreds of rapes uh, within a two-day period and destroying an entire community of African-Americans. And they're able to do that because they brought their guns home. But underneath, underneath the issue of guns there is just the fundamental issue of uh, hatred and uh, inability to see uh, other humans in this in this world uh, as having equal value Fair. as another human being. So there is kind of the last clip, and this is the last thing I'm going to going to address. So I think Lex hits on it very clearly, where the conversation that was happening there really more is about the evil in the hearts of humans, where evil people are going to do evil things regardless of what tools they have, um, whether it be firearms or, or whatever they have. Um, but beyond that, what's interesting when you look at the context of, you know, post-Civil War is there were, you know, there were a lot of vulnerable groups, African-Americans specifically and Native Americans and certain religious groups, because of the discriminatory laws that were put in place that restricted their access to firearms. You know, they weren't allowed to possess firearms. Um, they were discriminating, discriminated against on that basis of, you know, whatever race they were, whatever religion they were, and they couldn't have access to those firearms to defend themselves. And what's been really interesting in a post-Bruin Supreme Court world is now that the government in this post-Bruin world needs to justify their restrictions on our right to keep and bear arms using evidence, you know, historical evidence. A lot of the times what is now happening is the government, for example, let's point to the state of California, the state of California in the Miller case, which dealt with the California ban on so-called assault weapons, they put forward 86 different pieces of historical evidence that were supposed to justify their ban on rifles here in the state. 
But all 86 of those historical pieces of evidence were discriminatory laws during this era and before and after. So they point to these discriminatory laws that restrict a very clear group's ability to keep and bear arms and to defend themselves and resulted in incidences like, you know, was being discussed here where individuals are being killed. But now in modern times, we have our government entities and states like California and the ATF or whoever are still trying to use those discriminatory laws to justify their current restrictions on, you know, and their current gun control agenda. Now, fortunately, oftentimes in these lawsuits, Judge Benitez in the Miller case and the Duncan case rejected all of those discriminatory laws, said that they are absolutely irrelevant. The state of California should have never put forward those arguments. But we see it happen in New York and New Jersey and in other states, Illinois. These discriminatory laws that they're referencing here um, that have caused issues like they're referencing here are still popping up. And we have our own government that's trying to use those laws to justify their current overreach. Now, when you're looking at historical evidence that was dating back, you know, to after the Civil War, the Supreme Court was very clear in Bruin and Heller that very little weight should be given to those just even because of the time period. The true evidentiary weight should be given to any historical laws that, you know, are at 1791, slightly before or after. But these later discriminatory laws by no means should be justified. And even discriminatory laws that existed at the time of 1791, if we can very clearly see that they are discriminatory laws, they should never be used as a justification to restrict a fundamental human right. So, again, interesting discussion. You know, I just want to put in context a little bit more of what they're talking about there and the kind of the post-Civil War actions revolving around the possession of firearms by certain groups. So that's my reaction to this discussion that happened on Lex Friedman's podcast between him and then and I believe the historian's name is Jeremy Surrey. Uh, they had an interesting discussion about the Second Amendment, some historical context surrounding the Second Amendment. I found this very interesting. It was uh, much more interesting than some of the most common arguments that you'll see pop up or discussions, you know, kind of the mainstream discussions about firearms and gun control. A lot of times there's a ton of rhetoric that's thrown into those discussions, but at least when you're having a discussion that is more historically based in some way, or you have someone who's, I guess, a historian and trying to base some of the arguments in history, it's a little bit more interesting, but I still don't agree by any means with a lot of which was argued for and was said. And hopefully my discussion here added some further context about the history of the Second Amendment, the legal world, you know, pre-Bruin, post-Bruin, you know, revolutionary times, civil war times, and just kind of things that you should take into account when you're looking at the history surrounding the Second Amendment. And the history question is growing even more in importance because of Heller and Bruin. And a lot of times now these, or almost every single time now, these legal cases that are popping up regarding gun control are having to be rooted very specifically in history. And the government's having to point to historical evidence um, and pull out historical evidence to try to justify these restrictions. So really, there is two battles that happen right now. There's always a legal battle and then a historian, you know, history battle that happens in these cases. So again, 
Hopefully you guys found this interesting. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you like, comment, subscribe. Again, it's available on all audio formats. You can listen to it on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to podcasts. I would appreciate your support. And also, again, if you got value out of this, make sure you share it with your friends. That is the best way to grow the community, to get this information out to more people, to educate more people and get more advocates for the Second Amendment right. So again, thank you guys so much for all of your support. But as always, thank you all for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And never forget this nation was built by arm scholars and this nation will be maintained by arm scholars.